In this episode, we will be discussing the idea of validity of legislation. This is the question of whether a law is validly within the jurisdiction of the legislature that enacted that law. Is federal law within the competency of parliament? Is a provincial law within the competency of the provincial legislature? That is the fundamental question of validity analysis. Is a law valid? How we determine if a law is valid is we use an approach that is called the pith and substance analysis, the pith and substance doctrine. And this asks fundamentally that you characterize a law and then classify it to see if it falls within one of the heads of power granted to the government that enacted it, the federal or provincial legislature. At the outset, we have to think about the division of powers in the Constitution Act 1867. These are found in sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act 1867. These are the most important provisions of the Constitution for federalism analysis. Section 91 sets out the federal government's exclusive powers. Section 92 sets out the provincial government's exclusive powers. We will be going through a number of specific heads of power next class. In this class, we're not going to get into the nuances of what the different heads of power contain, except to refer to it while we're discussing a few of these cases. We will, however, get into that question next class. What's important to know at the outset is you have these two lists, federal powers set out in section 91 and provincial powers set out in section 92. There's one more overarching framing that I want you to have in mind, and that is that, generally speaking, most subjects, unless they are exclusively assigned to the federal government, will naturally fall to the provinces. Usually the task is to look and see if there is a specific federal head of power that allows a federal law, and if not, it will fall within provincial powers. There is an exception to this on some matters that are truly national in scope. We'll talk about that when we talk about the trade and commerce power and the peace order and good government, the peace order and good government power next class. But for today's purposes, have that in mind, that you have specific powers given to the federal government and the balance of the powers go to the provincial government. So what is this pith and substance analysis? Well, it asks that you characterize the legislation and then categorize the legislation. Characterize, categorize. And when you're characterizing the legislation, what you're looking for is the main thrust, the dominant purpose of the legislation. That is the essence of the pith and substance doctrine that we're going to explore in greater detail shortly. At the outset, though, before I get into that, I want to mention also the trend in the jurisprudence is away from an idea of watertight compartments and towards flexible modern federalism. The difference is the watertight compartments idea is that you have these different heads of power and they are exclusive. Things fall into one head of power, generally speaking. 
that idea held sway for the early portion of federalism analysis. That idea has given way to a new modern federalism that is more flexible and allows for significant amounts of overlap between federal and provincial law. This is the idea that the same law may be in one sense federal and one sense provincial. What I mean by one sense is I mean that one aspect of the law may fall properly within federal jurisdiction while another aspect of the law falls within provincial jurisdiction. And when that happens, both levels of government can legislate in relation to the subject. I'll give you an example. Dangerous driving has both federal and provincial elements. In Canada, unlike some other jurisdictions like the United States, other federal jurisdictions, criminal law is national. The criminal code is a national document, a national law. There are criminal code offenses against dangerous driving. Dangerous driving has a criminal element that's regulated federally. Licensing, your driver's license and your ability to get car insurance, those are provincial matters. And of course, dangerous driving can affect your ability to hold a license and can affect your insurance. So is dangerous driving federal or a provincial subject matter? It's both. That is the outcome of this flexible modern federalism where the same thing can have a federal element and a provincial element. Both federal and provincial legislatures can pass legislation in relation to dangerous driving. We'll get to it more later, but that is the idea that is articulated as the double aspect doctrine. It's the idea that the same subject matter, dangerous driving, has a federal aspect, criminal consequences, and a provincial aspect in relation to licensing and insurance. So that is the dominant tide, the dominant idea in federalism now. Flexible modern federalism that allows for overlapping legislation in many areas. It is not absolute, as we will see when we talk about the securities reference. But as a general rule, that's the idea you want to have. In, and this flexible modern federalism that allows for overlap exists despite the fact that the language of Section 91 and 92 assigns powers exclusively to the federal and provincial legislatures, respectively. It's this language of exclusivity that gave rise to the watertight compartments approach. However, notwithstanding that language in the Constitution, the courts have evolved into this flexible, modern, federalist interpretive approach. And you have to think, courts changing their approach to interpretation of the Constitution, how can they do that? Well, that's the living tree idea in action, to tie it back to the themes discussed at the outset of this lecture. And a great case to jump into that explains many of these ideas and expands on many more is the securities reference. This is a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. It, you'll see it's written by the court. Many decisions are written by one particular judge, but sometimes the court assigns a decision to the court as a whole, to all the judges together. They don't tell you who wrote the decision. 
they do this to signify an, a special strength and unity on important matters. And this was an important matter. This was a reference question put to the court by the Harper government who wanted to impose a national securities regulator. And this was a big deal because securities, financial securities, effectively stocks, bonds, other financial instruments, and the trading thereof was always a provincial matter. This is a a large industry, as you know, and the idea that the federal government was going to take over an industry that had traditionally been provincial was a big deal. This is a big change to the federal balance of powers. But the federal government said, look, things have changed. Things have changed significantly. This happened in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. And there was an understanding that the economy as a whole was put at risk by frailties in the securities market. So you see at paragraph two of the decision, a description of what was proposed. The court said, the proposed Securities Act represents a comprehensive foray by Parliament into the realm of securities regulation. If validly adopted, it will create a single scheme governing the trade of securities throughout Canada, subject to the oversight of a single national securities regulator. Big deal. It is a big deal. At paragraph 7, the court sets out the tension, and they refer again to this fundamental principle of federalism that we referred to early in the course and that we saw in the Como case, and the idea that there is a balance that is contemplated in the Canadian Constitution between the powers of the federal and provincial governments. And one power, one power assigned to one level of government, federal or provincial, cannot be used in a way that would effectively eviscerate the powers assigned to the other level of government. The court says at paragraph 7, it is a fundamental principle of federalism that both federal and provincial powers must be respected and one power may not be used in a manner that effectively eviscerates another. Rather, federalism demands that a balance be struck, a balance that allows both the federal parliament and the provincial legislatures to act effectively in their respective spheres. Accepting Canada's interpretation of the general trade and commerce power would disrupt rather than maintain that balance. Parliament cannot regulate the whole of the security system simply because aspects of it have a national dimension. The court goes on to explain that cooperative federalism is when the two levels exercise their respective powers harmoniously. The court notes at paragraph 9, it is open to the federal government and provinces to exercise their respective powers over securities harmoniously in the spirit of cooperative federalism. And then at paragraph 10, the court makes an absolutely key point about federalism and about judicial review on federalism grounds, on the division of powers grounds. That key point is the court says, this is not about doing what is optimal. They will sacrifice, if necessary, efficiency for the sake of maintaining a federalism balance. The court notes, at this juncture, this is paragraph 10, it is important to stress that this advisory opinion 
advisory opinion because it's a reference, a reference put to the court by the government. This advisory opinion does not address the question of what constitutes the optimal model for regulating the securities market. While the parties presented evidence and arguments on the relative merits of federal and provincial regulation of securities, the policy question of whether a single national securities scheme is preferable to multiple provincial regimes is not one for the courts to decide. Accordingly, our answer to the reference question is dictated solely by the text of the Constitution, fundamental constitutional principles, and the relevant case law. And they get into those relevant principles later in the judgment, and I want to point especially to where they get into the federalism principle. Again, this is the idea that there is this federalist balance that was part of the bargain of confederation and that can't be upset in a significant way because that would undo the deal that was Canada coming together with Quebec and Ontario joining despite their significant differences, joining with two other provinces as well. And the court notes it at section 54, the primacy of sections 91 and 92, those sections I mentioned earlier. That division set out in those sections is, the court notes, the primary textual expression of the principle of federalism in our Constitution, which was agreed upon at Confederation. And the court next notes, again, that coming back to the fundamental structure of government we talked about in the first few lectures in the first quarter of the course, the court notes the idea that if you're going to have a federalist structure, this necessarily implies someone to resolve disputes, that someone is the impartial judiciary. The court notes at paragraph 55, inherent in a federal system is the need for an impartial arbiter of jurisdictional disputes over the boundaries of federal and provincial powers. And the court then discusses that watertight compartments idea that I had raised at paragraph 56. Just briefly, actually, before I talk about paragraph 56. So again, here we are discussing a decision of the Privy Council. And it's important, I think, to just be absolutely clear on the different entities that can be referred to as the Privy Council in the Canadian public law framework. The reference you're going to hear on paragraph 56 is to the Judicial Committee of the UK Privy Council. This is the predecessor to the UK Supreme Court. It's the highest court in England, in the UK, and it was until the appeals to the Privy Council were abolished, also the highest court in the Canadian framework. That is not the same as the Privy Council we discussed when talking about cabinet. There, you remember, we talked about this broad Privy Council for Canada, not the Privy Council for the UK, but the Privy Council for Canada. There is the broad group that included honorary members and chief justices, etc. And then there was the important subset of that group, cabinet, the committee of the Privy Council for Canada. So a bit confusing. You have the UK Privy Council, the judicial committee thereof, that is this highest court for a part of Canadian history. You have the Privy Council for Canada broadly, which is a ceremonial entity. 
And then you have cabinet, which is a subset of the Privy Council, the committee of the Privy Council. So I just wanted to say that in case this is getting confusing with all these Privy Councils flying around. But let's get back to paragraph 56, where the court addresses that watertight compartments idea. The court notes the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was the final arbiter of Canada's constitution until 1949, tended to favor an exclusive powers approach. Thus, Lord Atkin, in 1937, famously described the respective powers of Parliament and the provincial legislatures as watertight compartments. The court goes on to note, though, that even the Privy Council recognized federal and provincial aspects overlap, and that the this famous metaphor comes up again, that the Constitution must be viewed as a living tree capable of growth and expansion. And the court goes on to note that this metaphor is a preferred approach, ensuring that confederation can be adapted to new social realities, that the balance of powers can be adapted to reflect social realities. So the, the court goes on to talk about this dominant tide of the modern approach. They say at paragraph 57, the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, us, as the final arbiter of constitutional disputes since 1949, moved towards a more flexible view of federalism that accommodates overlapping jurisdiction and encourages intergovernmental cooperation. And this is the dominant tide of modern federalism, the court notes. But you can't take it too far. The court is clear. You can't override the separation of powers by simply pointing to modern, flexible federalism. The court says at paragraph 61, well, flexibility and cooperation are important to federalism. They cannot override or modify the separation of powers. The secession reference affirmed federalism as an underlying constitutional principle that demands respect for the constitutional division of powers and the maintenance of a constitutional balance between federal and provincial powers. Then you get, at paragraphs 63 to 66, an excellent summary of the pith and substance doctrine, the validity analysis that is done within the federalism framework. They say, in essence, you have to characterize and then categorize a law. So how do you characterize it under a pith and substance approach? What are we trying to characterize? And the court says two things are relevant the purpose of the law, and its effects. So why was it passed? What was it trying to accomplish is relevant. But also, what does it actually do? Both the purpose and the effects. Both the why and the what in fact are relevant. How do you determine the purpose of a law? You can look both at evidence intrinsic to the law, its own text, Often a law will have a purpose clause, and that must be read and given some consideration. You can look at the broader structure of the act, and you can look at the specific part of the act that the provision at issue falls. So you can look intrinsic to the act, but you can also look at extrinsic evidence, like parliamentary debates. And you remember we went through that chain of how a bill becomes legislation. And we saw in that you have these debates. You have the debate at the second reading. You may have a further debate at the third reading of a bill. You have the committee stage. 
And when you look at the rationale given by the government in support of the legislation, that can help characterize its purpose as well. So you characterize the law by looking at its purpose and effects. And then you categorize it by looking at the heads of power that the government who enacted it say they rely on and making sure that it falls within one or more of those heads of power. When you're doing that, this is, this is very important. When you're doing that categorization, it's not a matter of looking at the list of federal and provincial heads of power and asking yourself, well, which one does this best fit into? Because of course, as I said at the outset, the same matter might fall within federal control in one sense and provincial control in another sense. That may allow for overlapping legislation. And even if the legislation may fit most comfortably under, say, provincial jurisdiction, if it is still supportable under one of the heads of power given to the federal government, it won't be declared invalid. So when you're doing this categorize analysis and deciding which head of power does it fall within, what you're really doing is saying, well, what heads of power are you relying on to support this? And does it fall in any of those? There's a slight wrinkle to that. And that is that in order to see if a law falls within a head of power assigned to the legislature that enacted the law, you have to, of course, determine what the scope of that head of power is. So, for example, Section 91.2 of the Constitution Act 1867 gives the federal government power over trade and commerce. Section 91.14 gives the federal government power over currency and coinage. Section 91. 16 gives the federal government power over savings banks. 9115 gives the federal government power over banking and the incorporation of banks. On the other hand, section 9213 gives the provincial government power over property and civil rights in the province. When you are considering how broad the power provided by Section 91.2 over trade and commerce and 91.15 and 16 over banking is you need to consider what scope needs to be left for provincial power over property and civil rights. In this way, the scope of the various heads of power may be limited so that you can read the two lists as a whole in a sensible and consistent way. We're going to talk more about this later. This is the idea of mutual modification. We'll come back to that in the third component of today's lecture, the third podcast. So really key passage to read is paragraphs 63 through 66 of the securities reference. This is as concise of an articulation of the pith and substance doctrine as you're going to find. So I'll go through it. So the court says, the pith and substance analysis is used by Canadian courts to determine the constitutional validity of legislation from a division of powers perspective. The analysis looks at the purpose and effects of the law to identify its main thrust. 
as a first step in determining whether a law falls within a particular head of power. And they note in this case, it's section 91.2, trade and commerce, that is being relied upon. The court notes, incidental effects may be discounted. The search is for the main thrust of the law. And this is the recognition that legislation often has many different aspects that it touches on. You don't look at the side issues that are affected by a legislative scheme. You're looking for the main thrust, the dominant purpose, the leading element of the law. What do they mean by incidental effects? For example, the Federal Fisheries Act is federal legislation aimed at protecting fish and the resource of fish for Canada. It contains provisions that prohibit, for example, the discharge of pollution in fish waters. Does that mean that it's a act aimed at regulating industrial waste? No. It's aimed at fish. The provisions that deal with industrial waste are incidental to the law's main purpose. So, so coming back to the important paragraphs from the securities reference, move on to paragraph 64, where the court talks about the intrinsic evidence and the extrinsic evidence that can help illuminate the purpose. The court says, intrinsic evidence such as purpose clauses in the general structure of the statute may reveal the purpose of a law. Extrinsic evidence such as Hansard or other accounts of the legislative process may also assist in determining a law's purpose. The effects of a law include the legal effect of the text as well as the practical consequences of the application of the statute. Okay, there's a bit to unpack there, so I'm going to go through that. When they say Hansard, this is an important term to know. Hansard just means the official record of the debates in the legislatures, in the provincial legislatures as well as in parliament. When they say the effects of a law include the legal effect and the practical consequences, what they're getting at here are two subtly different things. The legal effect is directly what legal consequences arise from the application of this law. The practical consequences are what real-world things follow from that. And I'll give you an example. There has been a ongoing effort in the United States to limit legal abortion. One method that is done is to make laws that on their face appear not to be aimed at regulating abortion, but are in fact passed for that purpose. So for example, one state said that in order to perform medical services, including abortions, your hallways must be at least some width, say eight feet wide. Now, the reason they did this was that abortions were not being performed in hospitals, but in smaller clinics, which didn't have these big wide hallways that you would need to have stretchers passing each other and sort of busy hospital goings to and fro that you might expect. And so the legal effect of this law was simply to regulate hallways within medical service providers in that state. The practical effect was to make 
the places where abortions had been provided no longer able to do so. So this is a place where the legal effect, the direct legal consequences of the law, are not as important as what the practical effect of those consequences will be in the real world. So that's the paragraph 64. Moving to paragraph 65 of the securities reference, the court says, after analyzing the legislation's purpose and its effects to determine its main thrust, that's after the characterize stage of the analysis, the inquiry turns to whether the legislation so characterized falls under the head of power said to support it, the classification stage. Characterize, classify, you classify or categorize. This may require interpretation of the scope of the power, the scope of the power said to support it. If the main thrust of the legislation is properly classified as falling under a head of power assigned to the adopting level of government, the legislation is intra vires invalid. So intra vires means within the jurisdiction. And finally, the court recognizes this idea that the same subject may have both federal and provincial aspects. And this means that federal law may govern from one perspective and provincial law from another. A federal law can pursue an object that in pith and substance falls within parliament's jurisdiction, while the provincial law pursues a different objective that falls within provincial jurisdiction. And this idea, this concept, is known as the double aspect doctrine. And it allows for the concurrent application of both federal and provincial legislation. So these are the key parts of the securities reference that I want you to know for this pith and substance analysis, the idea of how do we go about assessing the constitutional validity of legislation. We're going to come back to the securities reference in the next lecture to talk about the result and to talk about why this national securities regulator was found to be outside of federal jurisdiction. But I'm going to move on now. So we just want to have in mind those key passages from the securities reference which provide an excellent high-level introduction to division of powers validity review. That is the question of, is this law valid at all? Does this federal law fall within federal jurisdiction or is it outside federal jurisdiction and must be given no force and effect? And again, the key idea to keep in mind is that this pith and substance analysis has these two components, characterize and classify. The task of characterization, I think well described in the securities reference, has been described with different terms through the years. And I'm going to read a passage from the leading textbook on Canadian constitutional law by Peter Hogg, who just passed away very recently. And he writes under a heading, Characterization of Laws. The first step in judicial review is to identify the matter of the challenged law. What is the matter of a law? Laskin, that's a famous Supreme Court of Canada judge, says it is a distillation of the constitutional value represented by the challenged legislation. Abel says it is an abstract of the statute's content. Lederman says it is the true meaning of the challenged law. Mundell says it is the answer to the question, what in fact does the law do and why? Justice Beat says it is a name for the content or subject matter of the law. 
Other judges have sometimes said that it is the leading feature or true nature and character or the main thrust of the law, but usually they have described it as the pith and substance of the law. The general idea of these and similar formulations is that it is necessary to identify the dominant or most important characteristic of the challenged law. So that last sentence, the general idea of these and similar formulations is that it is necessary to identify the dominant or most important characteristic of the challenged law is a commonly cited description of what the characterization stage of the pith and substance analysis is getting at. And as I said when discussing the securities reference excerpts and as is clear in that passage from Hogg, it's a question of looking at both the purpose and effect of the laws. The purpose and effect. And you want to think why the purpose is so important is the fact that purpose plays this role in the analysis explains why federal and provincial legislatures who sections 91 and 92 say each have exclusive powers can pass functionally identical legislation. Why can they do laws? Why can the federal and provincial legislature each pass laws that have the exact same effect that would seem to suggest that their powers are not exclusive. Well, well, that can be possible when they pass the law for a different purpose. A great example are Sunday closing laws. These are laws that say stores must be closed on Sundays. Growing up, I grew up in the 80s, they were around. There was a bunch of uh, places where there was a law that said you couldn't have your store open on Sundays. There were both federal and provincial laws that mandated Sunday closing. They had the exact same effect that stores had to be closed on Sundays. Why could both the federal government and the provincial government accomplish the same thing, pass a law with the same effect, a different purpose? The federal purpose was morality, and you're allowed to regulate moral issues through the criminal law power. And until the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was passed, there was no limitation on your ability to impose religious morals through the criminal law. Judeo-Christian, in this case, explicitly Christian morals through the criminal law. So the federal government, to uphold morality, to uphold a Christian morality, said, nobody shall work on Sunday. It'll be the Sabbath. It'll be the day of rest. Now, the provinces came at these Sunday laws from a different angle. Provinces said, it's a labor issue. Having a mandated day of rest has positive outcomes for the labor force. This is not a morality issue, but this is regulating working conditions and labor within the province. That, as we'll see, is squarely within provincial jurisdiction. So, these two laws both deal with Sunday closings, both have the effect of saying you have to close on Sundays, but one is doing it to impose Christian morality, the other is doing it to give labor a rest. They both fall validly within the legislative power of the legislature that enacted them. The moral law falls under the criminal law power of the federal government. The labor law 
falls under the property and civil rights power of the provincial government. There's another case where there was a there was a ban on the sale of baby seal furs. Ordinarily, the sale of goods is regulated provincially, and the federal government can't ban the sale of a particular good. In this case, though, the court said no. That's aimed at fisheries protection, which is a federal matter. And then, as I mentioned, in the question of effect, generally you're just looking at the direct legal effect. What does this law say must happen or can't happen or may happen? However, sometimes the practical consequences of the law are not immediately apparent from the law itself, but can still play a role in characterizing the true nature of the law. For example, there was a case where there was a severe tax on iron ore that was placed that made it uneconomical to sell iron ore outside of a province. Now, the direct effect was simply to impose this tax. But when the court looked at the actual practical consequence, they said this is aimed at. The effect of this is, is dramatic on interprovincial trade. And the direct regulation of interprovincial trade, we'll see that when we get to the scope of the heads of power next class, the actual regulation of interprovincial trade is a federal matter. So this, this tax had such a dramatic effect on interprovincial trade, it fell outside the provincial jurisdiction. Generally speaking, though, here's a very important point. While we look at the effect of a law, both its direct legal effect, what exactly does this law say can or can't happen, as well as the practical consequences of applying the law, we do not look at the efficacy of the law. We look at the effect, not the efficacy. Efficacy means how well does the law accomplish its purpose. It's not for the courts to sit back and say, I see what you're trying to do, but boy, you didn't do it very well. It's the legislature's job to decide how it's going to accomplish its purpose. And the court won't find a law invalid on a division of powers basis merely because it won't be effective in accomplishing its valid federal or provincial purpose. This may come into play later when we talk about charter analysis in some ways, but in division of powers, you want to think it's effect, but it's not efficacy. It's not how effective the law is going to be. So what is the legal effect of the law what are the practical consequences of applying that law? Fair game. How well designed is the law? Is it really going to get done what it ought to get done? That's not a reason to find a law unconstitutional on a division of powers basis. Okay, one more idea to throw out there, and this is the idea of colorability. I mentioned this in a previous lecture as something that's coming. Colorability is the idea where you pretend to do something for one reason but you're actually doing it for another reason. I mentioned the abortion issue with the hallway width. That is a classic example of colorable legislation. Colorable means, I see what you're doing here. It means you were pretending to legislate for one reason. You're actually legislating for another reason. You won't be surprised to hear that the courts are reluctant to make a finding that a legislature has acted in bad faith is 
hiding the true purpose of its law. But they will go there, and indeed they have gone there in Canada also in relation to abortion. In Canada, there is a doctor, Henry Morgenthaler, who was an advocate for legal abortion, and he opened a clinic in Nova Scotia, an abortion clinic. And there's a law passed that said uh, a number of procedures must happen in hospitals, and they include, I forget the exact ones, but let's say they include surgeries and intubation and, by the way, abortions. And this was done, the legislative record made clear, directly in response to Henry Morgenthaler opening a clinic in Nova Scotia, an abortion clinic. And the court said, you just put a bunch of other things on a list with abortion to make it look like you weren't targeting him, but you were. You're not really concerned with health. You're aimed at a perceived evil. You're aimed at a criminal law purpose. So this Nova Scotia provincial law was struck down. It's an example of colorability. They said, you're not doing what you are pretending to be doing. You're trying to do something else. That's the colorability idea. So the next case I want to talk about is about the second idea, the classification under which head of power does something fall. This is the reference regarding the Same-Sex Marriage Act. And the federal government proposed legislation that would define marriage for civil purposes as the lawful union of two persons to the exclusion of all others. This would get rid of a definition of marriage that was as between a man and a woman. The government launched a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada to determine whether the proposed law was constitutional, both from a federalism and a charter perspective. And this had happened after several provincial courts had ruled that a definition of marriage that was as between a man and a woman was unconstitutional. So the federal government stepped in and said, well, we're going to just make it clear that same-sex marriage is legal throughout Canada, but we want to make sure that this is okay from both a charter and a division of powers basis. So the law needs to be characterized, and then it needs to be classified. The characterization was very straightforward. The court said, what's the pith and substance of this law? Well, the dominant characteristic of the law is apparent from its plain text, says the Supreme Court of Canada, that marriage as a civil institution has requirements of two persons regardless of sex, and they may be married. This is a very easy articulation of the pith and substance in this case. The tricky thing, though, is what does this fall under? Because there are two heads of power that talk about marriage in the Canadian Constitution, and one is given to the federal government, and one is given to the provincial government. Section 9126 is a federal power over marriage and divorce, and Section 9212 is a provincial power over the solemnization of marriage. So the court says, well, how are we going to resolve these two heads of power that both deal with marriage? marriage and divorce on the one hand, and solemnization of marriage on the other. This is an example of what I said earlier about how when you're interpreting the scope of a head of power, you can't do it by looking at that head of power on its own. You have to consider the other heads of power and how interpreting a head of power in one particular way would affect the other heads of power. So the provincial power over the solemnization of marriage in the province if there wasn't a federal power over marriage and divorce, 
would probably be read broadly to cover capacity to marry and the process of marriage, the ceremony of marriage, everything would be within there. There's a power about marriage that's given to the provinces. However, there is a federal power over marriage and divorce. And so the court said, well, what would be contemplated within that federal power? And they decided, aha, it must be that solemnization of marriage is talking about the performance of marriage, the ceremony of marriage, what steps have to be done to perform a marriage, whereas the federal power just over marriage is about the capacity to marry. Who can get married? Can divorced people get married? Can you marry people you're related to? And they said, that includes, can you marry someone of the same sex as you? They say the impugn law is about the capacity to marry. So it's a federal law. So it's valid. So does this federal law that changes the definition of marriage have impacts on provincial jurisdiction? Sure, it impacts how the provinces are going to exercise their jurisdiction over the performance of marriage. That doesn't mean it's not constitutional. Properly characterized and properly classified, it falls within a federal power. These effects on the provinces are incidental. This is an example of an incidental effect on the provincial powers. So that's a case to think about when you're thinking about this process of classification. Remember, we got to characterize a law and then classify or categorize it. The same-sex marriage shows how you're going to be thinking about these heads of powers, how you're going to be interpreting them so as to leave room for both. All right, and I'm going to move to the final two things I'm going to talk about in this part of the lecture, in this podcast. These are things that often give students trouble, maybe not as much trouble as what we're going to get to in the final podcast today, but these are things that give people trouble, and I'll go over them with some care. I'm going to talk about the double aspect doctrine and the ancillary powers doctrine. The double aspect doctrine I've mentioned a few times, and it's, I think, confusingly named as this double aspect doctrine. It makes it sound more important and complicated than it really is. The double aspect doctrine is simply a description of the fact that the same subject matter can be in one sense federal and in another sense provincial. We've touched on this already when I talked about dangerous driving. There's criminal consequences for that, and there are licensing and regulation consequences for that. You can't say dangerous driving is a federal matter, and you can't say it's a provincial matter. It's got elements of both. These Sunday closing laws have a double aspect. They fall under the double aspect doctrine. They both have a criminal morality component and a provincial labor law component. The case we have on the double aspect doctrine is multiple access and McCutcheon. And this is a case where there is an overlap on rules against insider trading. Both the Ontario Securities Act and the Canada Corporations Act prohibit insider trading. They prohibit people with inside knowledge from benefiting from that knowledge by making trades with respect to shares in a company. So here the question came before the court 
is this provincial law invalid? Is it within exclusive federal jurisdiction? The Ontario Securities Act prohibition on insider trading. And the court said no. Double aspect. The federal law is valid in regulation of trade and commerce. The provincial law is valid in relation to regulation of securities. The two characteristics are roughly equal. No need to kill one to let the other live. So they say in this case, both the federal and the provincial prohibitions on insider trading can both apply, can both exist. And indeed, the courts have gone so far as to say identically worded legislation could exist from both levels of government. And rather than being a problem, this is in fact an indication of harmony. Hey, they really agree on this. They've passed the exact same law. You know, great. We're, we don't have a problem here. So I don't want you to think the double aspect doctrine is, is too confusing. It really is just this idea that describes an outcome where there can be the same subject matter or even the same legislation being passed by both the provincial and federal governments because in one sense it's got a federal purpose in another sense it's got a provincial purpose that's the double aspect doctrine more confusing can be the ancillary powers doctrine this is also called the necessarily incidental doctrine and i don't like that phrasing. I think ancillary powers is a better phrasing because it gets at the essence of the issue. So that's what I'm going to call it. But you may see it called the necessarily incidental doctrine. So that's that doesn't mean anything different. That just means the ancillary powers doctrine differently described. And what this deals with is when you have a broad statutory scheme getting at something, but then somebody challenges one specific part of that law. It could be just one section of that legislation and say, aha, this is not in your jurisdiction. Well, can it be saved? Can that one provision that is alleged to be outside of the jurisdiction, can it be saved and held to be valid on the basis that the rest of the act is within the constitutional jurisdiction? The court says sometimes. How you decide is this ancillary powers doctrine. And what you had in the case we have, General Motors and City National Leasing, is a classic situation to have an ancillary powers question. Because you have the Combines Investigation Act. That's federal legislation. That's competition law. That's anti-monopolistic behavior, saying that uh, companies can't frustrate the free market by acquiring a monopoly in an area. So that's valid federal law. Just we'll take that as a given for now. I won't explain the basis for that at this point. So you have this valid federal law. There's one provision in that law that says somebody who's been the victim of this anti-competitive behavior, somebody else's monopolistic practices, can sue. It creates a cause of action and just take me at my word on this, creating a civil cause of action, creating a right to sue is ordinarily in exclusive provincial power. So someone says, well, all fine and good that the competition regulation, the Combines Investigation Act is in federal jurisdiction, but you can't tack on a new 
civil cause of action. I can't be sued under the Combines Investigation Act. That is provincial jurisdiction you're stepping on. Supreme Court of Canada says no. They say yes. We recognize that creating a new cause of action falls within provincial jurisdiction. But in this case, it is sufficiently integrated into a broader, valid federal scheme that we're going to let it stand. They say this particular section shouldn't be looked at by itself. It should be looked at in its context. And in its context, it's getting at a valid federal goal. It's getting at the enforcement of anti-competition legislation. And you see this in a lot of federal legislation. It creates a civil cause of action. It lets you sue in order to encourage enforcement. Copyright does that too. If someone's violating your copyright, you don't have to just go to the authorities. Copyright is a federal matter. You don't just have to go to the authorities and say, hey, you got to stop this guy. You can bring an action. You can bring an action using a cause of action created under the Copyright Act. And again, this is getting at that same idea that if you have a valid federal piece of legislation, you can use the mechanism of creating a civil cause of action. You can use a mechanism that is otherwise within provincial jurisdiction, creating new torts effectively to accomplish that federal goal. That's the idea. That's the big picture idea to keep in your head. The Supreme Court of Canada sets out a four-step process for how you would approach these types of questions. And they say, okay, first just look at the provision that's being complained about. In this case, let's just look at the section that allows somebody to sue under the Combines Investigation Act. Does that fall within the other government's authority? Well, in this case, they say yes. Of course, if the answer is no, it's that's valid in and of itself. That's the end of the matter. You don't have to go any further because the challenge is to a section that's even on its own is valid. So in order for there to be a problem, the court would have to say, yeah, on its own, that section you're talking about is in the other government's authority. You know, uh-oh, we better see if there's a reason for this. So you get through that first stage and you say, okay, this section at issue is within the other government's authority. Step two, you say, how bad of an intrusion is this? Is this kind of a marginal intrusion on something that's not really going to affect the other level of government's power to exercise its jurisdiction? Or is this a pretty significant intrusion? You know, generally these creations of one tort are seen as relatively minor incursions, whereas hypothetically the taking over of the securities industry that's a major incursion. You know, not an issue in this case, but we'll talk about that more when we get back to securities reference. So how big of an incursion is it? Is it a relatively minor thing that, well, technically it's a law that only the other government could pass? In practice, letting this slide is not going to dramatically impact that other government's jurisdiction. So consider how bad the intrusion is. Step three consider whether the broader statutory scheme is valid. So in this case, we have the Combines Investigation Act. That's federal competition law. It is indeed valid. I've always been a little bit troubled by this being step three. It seems like this should be maybe earlier in the analysis, maybe step two, but you know, we'll follow what the Supreme Court of Canada set out. And then step four, 
is to consider the integration of the bad provision into the good statute. Statute itself is constitutional. This one section is in the other legislature's exclusive jurisdiction. How integrated is this provision? If it is completely separate, if it's merely tacked on, just thrown in there, then that section will be unconstitutional. I can't take a valid act and start putting unrelated sections in there in order to try to bring them along into my constitutional jurisdiction. That's the extreme example. If the Combines Investigation Act said, and you can also sue in tort if somebody breaks your window. Well, it's got nothing to do with anti-competitive behavior. That's just tacked in there and ordinarily deciding what you can sue on in tort is a provincial matter. That would be problematic. But then for things that are not completely out of left field, there is a connection between how serious the incursion is at step two. How big of a deal is this for the other level of government's jurisdiction and how necessary that challenge section is for the functioning of the broader act. The court says, look, if the incursion into the other level of government's jurisdiction is significant, this has to be necessarily incidental. You can think just necessary. You really need this in order to have the broader valid statute work. If the incursion is relatively minor, it needs to be only functionally related. This is, I think, where people get a little bit confused. But if you take a step back, I think the whole thing kind of works. You think, okay, this is a doctrine that I only have to worry about if someone's challenging not the whole statute, but just saying one part of the statute goes too far. That's what you have to look for to even get into this being a problem at all. If you're in that situation, you think, well, does this section cause a problem? Yes or no. If you say, no, it doesn't cause a problem, you're done. It's constitutional, game over. If it does cause a problem, you think, how big of a problem? Is it a really big problem? Is it really going to diminish the jurisdiction of the other level of government? take something away, they're not really going to be able to regulate something anymore that they used to regulate? Or is it just something that's ordinarily within their powers, but it's not really that big a deal if the other level of government you know, uses that power once? Then you think, well, hold on, I better make sure this whole statute is valid. You know, If it's not, then again, we've got a bigger problem. But assuming it is, then I've got this situation where I know there's uh, one section that's problematic so within a bigger statute that's valid, I've decided how big of a problem it is for the other level of government. Is it a small problem or a big problem? And then if it's a small problem, I just have to make sure that there's a connection between the legislative goal of the broader valid statute and this section. Make sure they're not just simply tacking something on for no reason to try to sneak one through there. If it's a bigger problem for the other level of government, it's really kind of getting at something that's important to their jurisdiction, well, then it better be really necessary for this valid federal act to be upheld. So that's the ancillary powers doctrine. It's ancillary because ancillary means providing necessary support to the primary activities. Ancillary. So 
The primary activity is this act as a whole. This thing is just providing support. So that's where the ancillary powers, like you have the power to regulate anti-competitive behavior. That is the important thing. That's the important legislative purpose we're going to let you accomplish. We're going to recognize that in order to accomplish that purpose, it is related to let people sue other people who have engaged in anti-competitive behavior. And we're going to say, look, I know that usually only the provinces can create new torts, can create new civil causes of action. But in this case, we see the connection between what you're trying to do and this creation of a tort. And we're going to say that is okay. That's the ancillary powers doctrine. Um, we can go over it more in discussions and I don't feel bad. You, know, you don't feel bad if it's not entirely clear. This is one of the things that I always end up going over a few times and that's absolutely fine. So that's going to wrap up this first or second podcast of lecture four. And we'll come back to talk about two doctrines, operability the paramountcy doctrine, and applicability, the interjurisdictional immunity doctrine. The latter of those two is almost a rite of passage to go through law school to have to struggle with that doctrine. I hope I can make it relatively clear, but if you struggle with that one, you will be joining a proud tradition.